Joe Willis, heroics at the end. And there's the final whistle. Victory on the Cumberlands. The team no one can beat has toppled the team to beat. New England handed its first loss. And Nashville's doubters suddenly with a loss for words. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I'm Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of clubcountryusa.com. There was a lot to proprietize this weekend, <laughs> Tim. Is that a verb? Am I making a, up a word here? Uh, we're innovating in the usage of that word, I think, probably. <laughs> we are innovators and lots of other things, too. Anyway, big win this weekend for Nashville SC, their first of the season, 2-0 over New England. We are here to wrap it up and get you ready for Rayall Salt Lake on the weekend. Special thanks to Moon Taxi for the music you're hearing at the beginning and we'll hear at the end of the show and to ESPN 94.9 for the radio clips you will hear, including what you just heard, John Freeman's call of Nashville's win over the Revs, 2-0 courtesy of CJ Sapong and Alex Mwil, and a big episode for us. Two amazing interviews that were, I think, invigorating, at least speaking personally for me, and I think listeners are really going to enjoy. Yeah, after a solid weekend from the team, we get uh, a goal scorer to to spoil it a little bit here. We get a goal scorer and somebody who probably knows more about the upcoming opponent than anyone. We are really excited about this episode. CJ Sapong going to be on with us in just a bit. And yes, we will talk about his goal and about his on-field contributions to this club. But then we're going to go far, far off the field and, and really step into his mindset and how he views himself as a leader of this club and as a leader outside of the club and even outside soccer. And then a great preview with a friend of ours who is the authority, Tim, on Real Salt Lake. Yeah, Brian Dunzith is, he's a little bit of everywhere, but uh, fans from around the country definitely recognize him from Sirius XM FC. He is also the television voice of Real Salt Lake, and he fills us in a ton on the overarching picture of what RSL is about, as well as what this year's team is looking like. But first, Tim, let's recap Nashville SC's win over the revolution, Gary Smith coming into the match called it arguably the toughest test his team had faced so far this year. And they'd come in with three draws, a bit frustrated after outplaying all three opponents. And yet in their toughest test, they get their first win. Yeah, it's a solid performance against, I think, what Gary Smith said, this being the best rounded team that they have played against yet is accurate. I believe that. Um, there's still plenty to be improved upon. They beat one of the strongest teams in the league, though. It's the team that I picked to win the East in my season preview. So that's some, definitely uh, never something to look down on. In the early shout, we will break it all down for you. Go deep into the numbers, give you your gold nuggets. Then we'll get to those interviews with CJ Sapong and Brian Dunzith. After that, your mailbag questions. Our inbox was teeming yet again after a victorious three-point weekend for the boys in gold. Then we'll go outside in and talk about the Columbus Crew rebrand. Do we like it, or are we among the legions of folks who maybe aren't as keen on it or maybe don't think it's necessary? And then the final whistle, an MLS fantasy update, and some content recommendations. But without further ado, let's get into our early shout. New England having a hard time getting the ball out of their own defensive end after a booming kick from Joe Willis. It's taken over. It's Wheel who fires and scores! A gift wrap goal! Wheel makes undefeated New England pay. 
As heard on ESPN 94.9, that was the insurance tally for Nashville SC. Alex Mwiel opening his Nashville SC account in the 75th minute to give the boys in gold their first win of the year, 2-0 over New England. Nashville earns its first win of the year and avoids being the first team in MLS history to draw its first four matches. In addition to Mwiel's insurance tally, there was, of course, the CJ Sapong opener in the 25th minute. And perhaps most importantly, it all happened against a team that's expected to contend for MLS Cup this season in a match that Gary Smith, again, called the team's toughest yet. And here's what Gary had to say after the match. We're all very, very pleased that we've got our first win on the board, but I think it runs a little bit deeper than that. The guys have executed a plan today extremely well. There have been some gargantuan performances from individuals that have not necessarily had the greatest of weeks through some uh, illness and recovering from injuries. I think it really typifies the determination and the, uh, the spirit of the group. From start to finish, I felt as though the guys went about their business with not just the right attitude, but an edge and a will that really upset and didn't allow a New England side with a tremendous amount of talent to find any rhythm. So, Tim, after hearing Gary talk about the importance of this win, the lift that it gives his team, how important do you think it is on a scale of 1 to 10? I think a draw would have been totally fine. As you previously mentioned, no team had ever drawn their first four games. So four points after four games is pretty solid. It would have been okay in terms of setting up for the rest of the year. It would not have been ideal. Actually earning the win against the top side, I think says more because it is a win against New England Revolution than what it says about this team overall after four games. Seven out of ten. I'll give it an eight. And and I agree with you. A loss would not have been fatal. A draw would have been frustrating but defensible against such a strong opponent. I give it an eight because I think it was big to get off the mark, but even bigger to do it the way Nashville did it and against whom Nashville did it. They didn't just squeeze out a, a 1-0 win or even squeeze out a 2-0 win. They stymied New England really pretty completely. Um, Nashville put six shots on target after taking the lead to New England's three. They possessed the ball between minutes 16 and 30 at a 66% clip. So when you look at the possession stat at the end of the match, and it shows, what, 57 58% New England, mm-hmm. that's fine, but it's deceptive because the Revs were chasing the game, and late in the contest, Nashville just pretty much ceded possession to them. But in the moments that mattered, and in the moments after Nashville went ahead, they continued to be the aggressor. 52% possession coming out of halftime in the first 15 minutes of the second half. So instead of parking the bus, I would argue that Nashville drove it into and through the revs. And I think, Tim, that's a sign of the club's desired evolution in year two. And I think provides this club with a template for success in matches to come. Yeah, adding the offensive end of things to the the defense that we finally saw last week against Miami mirrored what we had seen from the team last year. Whereas the offense complementing it is something that we saw in the first two games, but we didn't see enough of the defense bringing the two together really does kind of tell the picture of what Gary Smith is looking for. And as we mine our gold nuggets for this 2-0 win, the formation was a big driver, I think, in that attacking mentality and success. It was the first time this year that Nashville departed from its 4-2-3-1 shape, and they went to a, a 4-4-2 with Dom Baji and CJ Sapong up top. Hani Mukhtar was ruled out due to injury, which opened up some flexibility for this team to do something a little bit different. 
and the boys in gold thrived as a result. Five shots apiece from Baji and Leal, three chances created by CJ Sapong, and of course, the go-ahead goal. Tim, what made that formation work so well? Yeah, I touched on this a bit in my game column yesterday on clubcountryusa.com, and I will get into much more depth about it this week. Should have something up this afternoon about it as well. The biggest factor for me is that Nashville didn't fall into the trap that you often see from teams that run out of 4-4-2, where you're depending on crosses, you're depending on long balls over the top. It's so tempting from that formation. When you don't have an attacking midfielder to kind of connect the strikers with the players behind them, whether that's fullbacks or the holding midfielders, Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy obviously played extremely well, and you need that out of them if you're going to have that sort of connectivity. Um, NSC was very willing to fold its wingers inside when it made sense. They let Dominic Baji and CJ Sapong take turns, kind of sending each other on runs from through balls as one of them checked backwards. They were playing forward to each other. One would get the ball in midfield and play a through ball rather than kind of lumping it up to a guy and playing it back to his complementary striker. And that's something that you don't always see when teams run out of 4 4 2. It's a little bit more sophisticated take on kind of the uh, kind of the big dumb football, as I like to call it. <laughs> and it, as Nashville caught New England off guard, perhaps with that different look, it transferred as well into the defensive end and, and a successful press, which ultimately led to that second goal of Alex Mwil. And it really did seem like, Tim, New England never really recovered from the different look that Nashville gave it or, or found a way to break through, even again in their own end trying to break out. Yeah, Nashville was able to press quite a bit more, and that's something that they do typically defend in a 4-4-2 formation anyway, so it's not necessarily the biggest change on the defensive side of the ball. But they felt a little bit more like they had the energy without making maybe as many players from that Nashville formation run up and down the pitch, and that let them put the pressure on and, and led to them wheel goal specifically. Nashville's attacking product has really never been stronger as this year, and and so has its attacking process. The boys in gold, uh, next gold nugget here, have outshot the opponent in all four matches. They continue to lead Major League Soccer in expected goals and in chances created. Tim, do you expect to see that same front foot mentality now as Nashville goes away from its four-game homestand and hits the road for three of its next four? Uh, nope. Gary <laughs> Smith is always pretty wide open about his perception of the way that teams kind of adjust their style for the home road split. And while he's usually talking about uh, what the opponent is going to do as they come into the Nissan Stadium or what the opponent is going to do as Nashville travels to that opponent's stadium, you could fairly say that when he talks about it, he's also talking about his own team. They're going to be a little bit more uh, conservative on the road. They're going to be a little bit more aggressive when they're here in Nashville. So um, you probably will see a bit more of a setup that is going to absorb some pressure and hit in transition. And there's a chance that the version of the 4-4-2 that we saw this weekend is, is the perfect formational approach to kind of execute that tactical one. You can absorb a little bit more and maybe send Baji and Sapong or if Jean Ducades or if Daniel Rios is healthy. You have the opportunity to play those guys um, going forward and being progressive out of maybe a bit more of a transition opportunity. The challenge, not just going on the road, but playing a Western Conference team. Here's a crazy fact for you. In seven matches this year, a team from the East has not beaten a Western Conference club. They're 0-5-2, and and Nashville, the team with the mantle to try to change all that, it's the only inter-conference match this coming weekend, so Nashville has a chance to break that streak. Is the West that much better this year, or are we talking about a situation where we're just four weeks in, small sample size, and maybe some unfavorable matchups for teams from the East? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely the latter. When you look at what the matchups have been, you've seen two Red Bull losses already. Um, you've seen two uh, LA Galaxy wins already. Um, Sporting Kansas City has won and drawn. If you don't think the Red Bulls are very good, or if you do think that LA Galaxy and Sporting Kansas City are, are two of the better teams in the West, as I do at this point in the season, it really is just a matter of a very small sample size with teams overrepresented within that sample size, making it look quite a bit more impressive for the West at this point. So next up, Rail Salt Lake. Eight of 10 experts picked RSL to finish either last or next to last in the West. It's a club that missed the playoffs last year and faces low external expectations under second-year manager Freddy Juarez. So, of course, as usually happens in this league, all they've done is thrive, at least in two of their first three matches. They've won two of their first three. Overpopular playoff picks Minnesota, who remain winless 0-4 this year, and Sporting Kansas City. And coming up in a few minutes, we will talk to RSL broadcaster and former player Brian Dunzith. He's going to tell us more about the men from Utah, as well as a couple of stories that hit a little bit closer to Nashville. You won't want to miss that conversation. But first, a real gem for you. Let's dive into Nashville's win over New England with the man most responsible for the victory forward, CJ Sapong. Reinserted towards the end. It's loose in front, and they've scored. It's CJ Sapong. That's why they got him. That's why he's here. And at long last, the boys in gold have a lead to protect. Well, we are thrilled to talk with Saturday's man of the match who scored the boys in gold's opening goal, which also opened his account in a gold kit. CJ Sapong, congratulations for scoring the 74th goal of your MLS career. And thank you for joining us today. Lovely. Uh, No problem, man. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on to talk about, first off, what's happening on the pitch and also some of the work that you've done off it. But we have to start with your contribution to the win Saturday. You know, last season was a big change for everyone in MLS. It presented all kinds of challenges, and, and no one was immune to it, but you might have been impacted as much as anyone. When you put the ball into the net and you ran toward the supporters to celebrate, after all that, that you'd been through here in the past year, year and a half, what was going through your head? Yeah, man, obviously a lot of work, hard work, and a lot of sacrifice. Um, but mostly it was just a, a moment that I was trying to embrace. And it's something that obviously being at a new team in a new city, I'll always remember and credit to the fans that, you know, all 12,000 plus of them, because it, it really felt like there was more there and, you know, scoring that goal and looking into the, the stands and making eye contact with these fans and feeling that passion just makes me even more excited for, you know, games to come. It was your first start with the club. I know it's been a, a competitive striker group, and maybe that group is as deep and competitive in Nashville as anywhere in MLS. What have the dynamics of that competition been like? And do you feel like the the competition for playing time has been a factor in producing a more positive scoring output so far when, when you or when others have been on the pitch? Yeah, you know, and at the very least, it keeps us all sharp. I've always felt like with the four core that the, the team has, we're always going to have an opportunity to uh, put defenses under pressure. And then when you look at the nature of an MLS season, you're always going to need everybody. So when you have that kind of competition and training, the coaches do well to make sure we're continuously running sessions that keep us sharp and keep us focused on, you know, areas of the game that we're going to find ourselves in the game. So, you know, at, at training, we're always keeping each other lighthearted, but also staying, uh, staying serious and trying to make sure we're, we're pushing each other. 
Yeah, I wonder what that relationship element is like when you're all competing, obviously, for playing time and ultimately your livelihood, but also you need to build the cohesion in the relationships because there are going to be times when you're playing with Baji up top, right? Or or with, with teammates. I'm sure that's a challenging balance to strike. Yeah, that's something that it depends on, you know, how experienced you are in the game and truly just your personality type, right? I realized very quickly that, one, you're going to need uh, all your personnel in MLS season. And then also, two, uh, you know, the other fours are the, are the guys on the team that really resonate with what you're going through. You know, when you're doing well and scoring a lot of goals, it's something that they're in training and, and keeping you confident. And when it's not going so well, you know, usually they're the ones in your ear as well, trying to uh, keep you focused and, and help you understand that, you know, the, the tides will turn and, you know, it's it's one of those things where because they they know the nature of the position, uh, you end up be actually being closer with with the you know members of, of your team that play the same position. Saturday was a bit of a swing match for you guys. You leave the homestand unbeaten with a win under your belt, and I'm sure that gives the group a lot of confidence, right? That it's positive play finally led to I think what we would agree it's been a deserved reward. You guys have been on the front foot and been the better team for each of these matches, but then you get the three points against New England. What do you think this team learned about itself in the first four matches that can help set the tone as you hit the road now for three of your next four? We've learned that now teams for sure are not going to be underestimating us. You know, this is a team that last year might have crept up on people and, you know, a lot of different outside perspective might say, you know, there was luck here and, and, and there. Whereas now when we come in four games in, being unbeaten, you know, having games where we had to crawl back uh, just to get points, having games where we, we stayed very sharp defensively, having different members uh, of the team uh, bring, putting in good performances in different games. We're a very well-rounded team. And now when it comes to the preparation, other teams are going to have to look through, you know, the whole roster and they're going to have to understand that they're going to need to bring a complete performance uh, to be able to get a result against us. Yeah, a big part of what you just talked about is kind of the mental side of the game. And you're a guy who who embraces that side of the game, I would say. You talk a lot about meditation, visualization. How did you get interested in those things and, and how have they helped you in your game and, and become a better player? Yeah, I mean, I would say just through the game and honestly, life, uh, life's natural trials and tribulations in our position we're sometimes defined by our stats and well most of the time defined <laughs> by our stats and if you're not careful you can lose hold of the things that make you who you are and ultimately it is who we are as people that has gotten us into this position and will carry us after you know uh, we're, we're all done with the game so for me I think it, it came after after Kansas City maybe my third or fourth season, you know, having a couple of championships under my belt, still being young and finding myself not really being happy every day, you know, and through a little bit of research and um, a lot of reading, I, I realized ultimately I am the controller of my, my mindsets, you know, the outside and external factors will always be changing um but ultimately only thing i can really control is my response and since then i've been able to get more out of the game more out of every day and you know when i'm here in my 11th year 
I'm not only playing with a lot of passion and heart, I'm also understanding that, you know, when this is done, I have things I can, you know, definitely um, move into and I'll have sweet memories that'll definitely, you know, propel me forward. Yeah, that's something that we actually wanted to talk about. You're a guy who, who does have a ton of interest off the field, whether that's being on the executive board of Black Players for Change, um, your charity, Sacred Seeds, getting involved with a bunch of different startups. It seems like you, you, you ha- are more invested in those than just a guy who lends his voice to an ad or something like that. One thing that we, re- that we Wes and I, are, are really interested in is, is you guys as, as more than just players. How did you get involved in, in all these different things um, off the field? And, and what inspires you to have such a broad range of interests? Yeah, so I guess it, it's, it's really from the previous question and, mm-hmm. and the meditation and, and finding a path to self-awareness. Because once you take that path as a person and you start to recognize, oh, wow, like, I have more purpose than just the amount of goals I can score in a season. And I actually am interested in in different things besides soccer. You know, it it seemed so uh, wrong for me in my earlier, earlier in my career to put any attention towards anything besides soccer. And, you know, as I moved through meditating, becoming more self-aware, I realized like, Oh, okay. Like, I do get fulfillment out of, you know, providing whether it's skills, resources, um, knowledge and information to, you know, underserved people in in terms of ways to, you know, increase their health and maximize their potential. And the great thing about that for me that just happened to work out well is when you're talking about sustained growth and um, sustainable development and increased health. These are also things that help me in my career, you know, so when it's working hand in hand, it, it makes it uh, a lot easier and allows me to be in a more flow, free flow state. And um, yeah, you know, so these days I'm getting a lot of fulfillment of stepping on the field. Like I know every time I step on the field, one of those things that I'm doing off the field is getting highlighted. And even now, you know, with what we have with score side of, you know, when I score a goal and the team scores a goal, it, w- I've worked with the back line to be able to pinpoint, you know, different type of charities in the city that can, can reap the benefits of that. When you talk about that sense of purpose and introspection and intelligence, how does that apply in a locker room that's new to you? When you come in as a respected leader on and off the pitch in this league, and you enter a locker room like Nashville's, where I think Mike Jacobs and the and the technical staff have been very focused on installing and cultivating leaders who can form a stable and strong locker room. You know, you have guys who are established leaders in this league. How do you carve out your own leadership role for yourself when you're not maybe asked to be the leader of the team, but certainly a leader and, and a contributor to that culture? I love it because these questions are just like working perfectly with each other because that's just me being myself. You know, it's it's leading by example and the things that I'm doing in terms of maximizing potential. I'm looking at different pillars of everyday life. And when I look at my teammates and you see guys in different positions, right, you got guys, if it's a young guy that's getting a lot of minutes and you can see that their career has an opportunity to take a, a, a next step, then, OK, maybe it's talking about, hey, what what kind of investments are you getting into? Like, how can we? increase your financial freedom while you're at this early phase in your career, you know, and 
adversely a guy who's on the other side of the roster you know I'm somebody that's very heavy into health and wellness like what kind of things are you doing off the field to recover what kind of things are you doing to you know maximize strength output and that's where I, I think I bring value to the locker room because after playing for 11 years and going through the ups and downs that undoubtedly will come in a career again and in life I naturally am able to find myself in positions where I'm having dialogue that's just ultimately conducive to growth with, um, you know, members of the team or the staff. So a takeaway I'm getting from this conversation is that culture and mindset ultimately play a vital role in success. How does that apply to this team's ambitions in 2021? In soccer, you have a culture that is predominantly, we'll just say non-American, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that I admire of non-American players is there is sometimes it's maybe a over-conditioned mindset of like soccer is everything. But a, a lot of the times you'll find that these guys are working for family, right? They, they've come from places where soccer was the only way out. And, what, you know, when they're in this position now, I feel like, okay, we can work on ways for them to understand that they hold value beyond the pitch, but there is a, a chip, a, a, a seed that is deep down in, in who they are of passion and, and, and desire for, for performance and, and results. And that's the culture that I feel from, from every player on this team. Everybody wants to be better every day. Everybody, ha- you can sense that there's something that truly deep down motivates them and, Ultimately, when you have many individuals that share that that type of mindset, it's a it's a palpable energy that you know starts to permeate throughout the whole team. Well, CJ, thank you for a really thoughtful conversation, well beyond the uh, the boundaries of the pitch. And congratulations again on your goal this past weekend, and best of luck heading to Salt Lake and beyond. Thanks again for your time, Tim. What can you say about that conversation? Just a, a deep, intriguing, revealing chat with a guy who is so much more than just a soccer player. Yeah, I always try to remind readers and now listeners that professional soccer players, like you said, are so, so, so much more than just athletes. They're human beings with emotions and ambitions that they extend well beyond the game, honestly, even if soccer is something that might help them reach some of those ambitions. Um, there may not be a better example than CJ, a guy who's um, was very open with us, very honest with us. And obviously you can tell he's, he's probably one of the smartest guys in this league and one of the guys who um, looks beyond soccer while still excelling on the soccer field. Let's move to a club that is well-known for the veterans it has produced in its MLS history. Nick Romando, Kyle Beckerman, among many. Real Salt Lake. They are Nashville SC's next opponent. The boys in gold travel to Salt Lake City in Rio Tinto Stadium. Saturday night, a late-night kickoff you can hear on ESPN 94.9, 8.30 p.m. Saturday evening. And RSL, a team that has... Behaved contrary to expectations so far this year. I think it's safe to say two and one with two good wins, but they are coming off a two one loss to San Jose, a brace by one Chris Wondolowski in the 83rd and 88th minute as a super sub. Nonetheless, a surprising start, and they've cast themselves a bit, perhaps as uh, as the villain, as David Ochoa after the Minnesota win kicked the ball into the wonder wall into the supporters <laughs> section 
in Minnesota and established some controversy there. I know Nashville SC color commentator Jamie Watson had a few gracious but firm things to say on Twitter, and the RSL supporters didn't quite uh, love that take. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, RSL, a team that I think looks, Tim, a bit more challenging on the schedule now than perhaps when we looked at the schedule a few weeks ago. Yeah, and you mentioned behaving contrary to expectations, which uh, the uh, little bit of double entendre there with the Ochoa kick into the stands. But I like embracing the villain side of things. And we're going to talk to Brian Dunseth about that in a second here. And I think that's really helped RSL kind of exceed expectations by kind of saying, hey, not everybody has to be the good guy. So as we get ready for that interview first, take a listen to Brian and his partner's TV call of RSL's tremendous goal to open the scoring against San Jose, courtesy of Rubio Rubin. If you want to know everything there is to know about Saturday's match with Real Salt Lake, you've come to the right place. It's time for a chat with the preeminent expert on RSL soccer, Brian Dunseth. He's been a club legend ever since he scored the game-winning goal in Salt Lake's first ever home game after playing 182 matches in his Major League Soccer career. He's now the color commentator for RSL's TV broadcast team and a host on Sirius XMFC. Dunny, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad uh, Jamie Watson is allowing someone else to join us. <laughs> All right, before we get into chatter about this match, then you were a teammate with Jamie. Uh, do you guys have a wager on this weekend's match? Uh, I, I tr- No, no. He's like my little brother. I'm just here to tell stories about Jamie Watson. What do you guys want to know? Oh. I got heard on Watson. Anytime he, he crosses the line, call me and I'll give you stories because I've got stories upon stories of Watson. <laughs> uh, get into soccer. This was... Brian, not a team that generated much positive buzz externally in the offseason. Uh, a team that a lot of people picked to finish 11th, 12th, 13th in the West. And I know Friday's come from behind loss was disappointing after Wando decided to to Wando there late. But apart from that, it's been a hot start. What do you make of that? I mean, wins against teams that are expected to be high quality in SKC and Minnesota. Were the pundits wrong about this team? And, and is the team motivated, do you think, by the lack of respect that they got? Well, first off, it's it's Salt Lake City. So it's a Utah market that always has a chip on its shoulder. Mm. Never feels like it gets the respect that it deserves in any sport whatsoever. So like, I get all that. The, the preseason rankings, I just think it's guys throwing darts because at the end of the day, there's such an influx of international talent that when people say like out, outside of Doyle, who can like research anybody or Bogert or, you know, those type of guys – there's so many new players. So how do you really know how good they are? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, adapting on the field, off the field, live culture, spouses, kids, all that, you know, the whole process, it doesn't make, you know, one good player doesn't make a team. So as I get past all that, I get why the experts didn't look at RSL. You know, you're looking at what happened with the ownership last year, which is horrific. You're mm-hmm. looking at the situation where the club is, or the club is essentially being managed by the league. It's autonomous, but it's still the league is okaying everything. Uh, you have a head coach that's going to take over as his second real season after taking over from Mike Pecky after he was unceremoniously fired and let go, um, who has really no huge name. It's not like Bruce Arena. And, and then ultimately, when you look at the team, you say guys like Albert Rusnak, Demir Krylock, Everton Louise, Paulo Ruiz. All right, really good players for MLS standard. But then you've lost Kyle Beckham and you've lost Nate Monuoha. You've just traded... Corey Baird down to LAFC. So 
I, I, I got all that. Now, talking to Freddie, the one thing I don't think people truly understand from the outside is he cleaned house on his entire staff. And so you do all that. You add Rubio Rubin, who nobody was talking about, despite being a U.S. soccer young player of the year. And I think seven or eight international appearances. Uh, spend some time with Maradona down in Dorado, Sinaloa. Anderson Julio, who RSL had had as their number one target two years ago, but he went to Atletico San Luis in Liga Mekis, and that didn't really work out. Atletico San Luis is an absolute disaster right now. And then they got Bobby Wood on the line, and Bobby Wood, everyone's like, well, Bobby Wood isn't Bobby Wood because he's not playing, and he's not good enough. Well, when you're on $4 million net a year and your team's been relegated and the board's trying to get you out and telling the coach not to play you, maybe there's a reason why you're not playing. So – as I'm saying all that, I just think that this team, I, I've been using kind of the team analogy that this team is similar to what the Columbus crew was when Bezbachenko and Caleb Porter got there. You know, the Haslam's buy-in, Pete Edwards buy-in. Next thing you know, you add a Zellerail and you add a Darlington Nagby, and all of a sudden you're an MLS Cup champion. So I just think that dependent upon the right owner, if there's an owner that comes in and you know, let's use Seattle for an example. If you could find a Rui Diaz and a Ladero where you're willing to spend, you know, $5 million on acquisition per player, $5 million on salary, all of a sudden you're in a different bracket, right? You're, you're shopping no longer at Super Walmart, which is basically what Real Salt Lake has been shopping at for the last couple of years. Yeah, I think you mentioned a guy in there that I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think it'll be for obvious reasons. Is a guy like Rubio Rubin kind of emblematic, a guy who had buzz early in his career, didn't really work out for him in Europe, didn't really work out for him that well in Mexico. Is he kind of a guy that's emblematic of, of how this team is built? And then, of course, um, after his goal Friday evening, what, what goes through your mind when you see that? Do you realize, okay, I've got to get this right because this call is going to be immortalized, or do you just continue going with the flow? There's a long history from the days of Garth Lagerway and Jason Christ. Mm -hmm. Jason Christ, the first player ever signed from the club. You know, Eddie Pope, Clint Mathis, Andy Williams, myself. Not that we were degenerates, but we were just a bunch of guys that for one reason or another, it hadn't worked out or there just wasn't a lot of respect. So they all kind of understood what the league was about, but at the same time, they were kind of like double birds, you know, like, all right, like we're not David Beckham in the galaxy, but we still have a style of play and an identity. When I get to Rubio, this is kind of the mentality. Rubio is just a great kid, man. He, he, he wrecked his foot and his ankle. It stopped him from, you know, international appearances, brought him back. He was at, I mean, you don't sign for Tijuana and Liga Mackeys unless you're a good player. Right. And I think that all he wanted was the opportunity. And, and by the way, Freddie told him that they were planning on sign, signing Bobby Wood. And he was like, I just want a chance. I just want to play. So I think, out of all the players, and I know we'll talk about Chicharito and Rui Diaz and like all the big names that are flying right now, but three games, three goals, two assists. Rubio's phenomenal what he's done so far. And he's the first pure number nine that this club's had since Alvaro Sabarillo, meaning like it's a guy that can hold the ball up. Mm -hmm. He's not going to run into the channels and get away from center backs. Like he's right there. And all of his goals have been really, really high level goals. Now the goal call, the problem for me is I do this, I do this game where it used to be called uh, drink, drinking with Donnie, but it's, it's not about drink. It's not about alcohol, but it's about fan interaction. So I'm tweeting during the broadcast. Mm -hmm. I'm asking people to send me words and names and phrases that I then slide into the broadcast. Watson is texting me during games. Like, see this, see that. See, and I'm just, <laughs> I, I try to seamlessly slide them in. Then all of a sudden one super random. And everyone's like, why did, did he just, so yeah, the Rubio one, I was trying to figure out how to include 
something about the Richter scale, because obviously they're playing the San Jose Earthquakes, which mm -hmm. then on the third replay, I was able to say, and as the ball hit the net, you could actually feel it on the Richter scale. So yeah, I'm, I messed up in the head. I know <laughs> that I got to do justice to the call, but at the same time, I'm trying to like interact with the fan base trying to broadcast. Hey, I play the same game, by the way, because it can it can force creativity. It can force you to outside of your vocabulary box a little bit, right? Yeah. My three semesters at Cal State Fullerton and my pass or fail math, I'm just proud that I never had to declare a major and I never had to study all. So uh, <laughs> anything I can do to stimulate my mind at this point. So we've talked about some of those guys who have been not necessarily journeymen, but maybe a little bit underappreciated. I think some of the guys that are looked at as the next generation, are, they're three guys who are um, with the USU 23s down in Mexico um, earlier this offseason. You know, guys like Justin Glad, Aaron Herrera, David Ochoa, are they representing the next generation? Are they kind of blending in as they go? Obviously, um, Glad and Ochoa are basically every, every minute starters, but um, how, how does this kind of next generation fit in with what's kind of been established so far? Yeah, so that's kind of been the mantra because of previous ownership. There was the idea that, hey, we can do what New York did with Tyler Adams. We can do what mm -hmm. Vancouver did with Alfonso Davies, and we can sell players. Um, and because of the, the mechanisms of the league at the time, this club lost Richie Ledesma to go to Holland, and they lost Sebastian Soto to initially go to Germany, who's now with Norwich City. And that was because there just wasn't enough homegrown spots for them to sign with the first team to sign a pro contract. And so you kind of get in this kind of wicked dilemma of, are we a buying club? No, not really. Are we kind of like a medium range TAM club? Yeah, probably. Uh, we're being run by a commercial real estate influencer in Utah who wants to see his ROI on anything that he spends as a return on his investment. And he invested heavily on the infrastructure, not so much on the team. So that with adding the Monarchs, adding the Royals and bringing the Academy from Casa Grande, which is an incredible training facility. I mean, mm -hmm. I got tears in my eyes because of jealousy and envy for this next generation because I, I couldn't believe the quality that these kids have every single day. But yeah, Aaron Herrera, Justin Glad, David Ochoa, Donnie Toya, Eric Holt. I mean, they started against San Jose. Back four and goalkeeper were all homegrowns, which mm -hmm. is really mind-blowing when you think about it. And then on top of that, you know, they've, they've identified kids that are MLS caliber, but not MLS starter. And that's the tough part for all of these players is there's only so many, you know, Caden Clarks or Cade cows in the league right now that are like, okay, these kids are special, right? They're, they're, they're next level. If I had to rank the order of player right now, if you said those three, Justin Glad, Aaron Herrera, David Ochoa, who are all devastated about missing out on the Olympics, I would say Herrera is ahead of all three because I think he's adaptable to play on either side, left or right. He picked up a hamstring injury against Sporting Kansas City and Brody came in and was phenomenal. Ochoa, I believe, his ceiling is a U.S. men's national team starting goalkeeper. And by the way, Tata Martino is still calling him because he can play for Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. um, and Glad, I think Glad's going to end up being more of like a Nat Borchers. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe like a Walker Zimmerman who's going to get mm -hmm. a cup of coffee with the national team. Omar Gonzalez-ish, you know, Beasler. They're going to be lifers for the most part, but not necessarily like full international caliber starting world cups even though a couple of those i named made world cup rosters speaking of ochoa obviously there was the, the controversy a couple weeks ago is the club kind of embracing a bad boy reputation not necessarily you know of the overarching like spirit of the club but for this season yeah. are they kind of saying like hey if people are going to say that that we're the bad guys we'll we'll embrace that with the with the repeated kick uh -huh. into, into the rsl uh, fan section yeah. there after the home win so 
that okay so where do i start with ochoa <laughs> first, you, first I, you can start with jamie because he he obviously came out against it negatively a couple yeah, days later too. Like, Come on, talk bro, smack to him again. bro you're national <laughs> take off this minnesota united homer um and he got murdered i loved it i was just teasing i was just poking him on twitter going why do you hate ochoa uh and he rsl fans were jumping all over it was great um <laughs> I believe that we need more villains. I don't like the fact that we're all cookie cutter heroes. I, I hate it. I despise mm-hmm. it, you know, but I grew up with like Mamadou Diallo and Mike Pecky and, you know, like bigger personalities. And so I was here for it. And you know, that Goonies never say die mentality. It, it stuck for Ochoa. I mean, he won a USL championship at 18. He was in the final at Louisville blowing kisses to the fans in the middle of the game. Cruyffing, forward sliding by him and like turning around and laughing was it petulant yeah did i love it a hundred percent was it malicious like he turned and like kaku the ball into the stands as hard as he could no he punted it up in the stands he knew immediately like he shouldn't do it you could tell it wasn't like <laughs> i'm gonna start swinging at people running at me because asani Dotson ran over mm-hmm. chase gaspar the guy who's never gonna throw a punch in any situation ran up to him like he was going to throw a punch, but he was never going to throw a punch. And Ochoa just stood there and kind of laughed. And I think that made it even even better because then Adrian Heath got pissed off and he reacted the way he reacted. And I, I'm here for Adrian. I love everything about him. And so, yeah. Is it petulant? Yeah. Is it too much? Did he go over the top? I don't think so. But, but he's in that one position that when the ball hits the back of the net, you're going to hear a lot of ish talking, right? He's going to get it from the – oh, and the fact that what what transpired in Guadalajara, he was already a target. So I think now what we kind of talked about is you can play that role, and it's totally fine. Like, if that's who you want to be, awesome. I'm here for it. But you've now given a pass to every fan in any opponent's stadium to come after you and know that there's an opportunity to get underneath your skin. There was something called plant the flag. When I scored the first goal for RSL – I ran in the corner slump. But, and so what we had done before COVID was at the end of the game, a fan, like one of the fans would come out, hand the flag to man of the match. He would plant the flag in front of the South section because there can't be that interaction on the field. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of leaned it. We, we were talking about the idea of let's sign a soccer ball. Let's make it something positive. And when Ochoa, the first game kicked it into the stands, just this little kid caught it and he had this big Cheshire cat smile and it was like one of those once in a lifetime moments for this kid. So from what was a super petulant, maybe potentially negative, I thought completely awesome situation um, turned into something special. And I was getting messages from Alexi like, I love this kid. He's amazing. And I was like, yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. So yeah, dark arts. Well, I'm here for it. So the hope, obviously, for RSL is to be kicking a ball into the stands in victory against Nashville this weekend. If you're Freddie Juarez and you're looking at a Nashville team that's known for its defense but has shown some signs of, of being more expansive in year two, what's your game plan and where on the pitch do you think this match will be won or lost? And I guess, you know, finally, do you trust your attack to take the front foot at home or would you have enough respect for Nashville's forwards that it might cause RSL to be a little bit more conservative? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what this looks like going forward because the acquisition of CJ Sapong on top of Baji gives you a, a, a rare one-two punch in terms of athleticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm using a I'm using a broad stroke because it's obviously intelligence gets them to this situation. But 
their 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 raw athleticism and speed is frightening for any opponent. If you're talking about an individual, if you're talking about two individuals, then I mean a pair, it's really difficult to keep the game in front of you when you know that constant threat is kind of in the shadows off your shoulders. Um, and then with Cadiz, you, you just have you have kind of two similar, one kind of different. This is where I think Gary's done an incredible job. And I've, I've gotten to know Gary over the years as kind of a broadcaster. Games will be ugly because that's the way he sets it up. He's a very pragmatic coach with the way that he wants. You know, it's going to be a 4-2-3-1 or some hybrid of a 4. He's going to sit with 4. He's going to sit with 2. And he's going to ask his outside backs to get forward but still create the balance. And he's going to ask Godoy and he's going to ask you know, the everlasting gobstopper of Dax McCarty to just sit and protect I love Dax. I got stories about Dax. He wants some stories as well. And I just, now he's added a different dimension up top that I think in the next couple of years, it's one thing to build an expansion team. Mm-hmm. And I always say expansion team, you don't want to be on the expansion team because year one of the expansion team is just, eh, we'll see if it works. Mm-hmm. Year two is like, man, we really messed up here, 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 and here. And this is what we need. Year three is usually when you really start to get it right. So I think he's actually a year ahead of schedule with the way that they were able to capitalize with Mike and everybody in the offseason, capitalize on a couple different players. And I think it gives them a much more well-rounded identity that's not just, hey, we're going to be pragmatic defensively, we're going to keep the game in front of us, and we're never going to concede more than a goal. Um, because when I watched the team last year, it was a boring style of football, boring style of soccer, but they started building on it. And once they got their kind of defensive foundation down, then, you know, attacking players and overlapping players and wide service and variation of service and Hani Mukhtar finding, finding his rhythm later in the season. So I just, as I'm verbally going through all of this, I think that now Nashville, again, broad stroke, is one of the most well-rounded early season teams that I've seen because I haven't seen really, really high performances, but I haven't seen really, really low performances. Mm-hmm. I've seen kind of these building performances and I think the weekend kind of just shows how he's got a bunch of variations that he can throw out there depending on what the game means. Well, Dunny, thank you so much for your time today and illuminating and entertaining conversation. We could have you on and tell stories for two hours. So, yes, we do want in the future those, those stories about Dax and some more about Jamie. But in the meantime, we'll uh, leave it here for now. And best of luck on the microphone this weekend. Thank you very much. Special thanks to KSL TV, by the way, for the audio of that goal call for Real Salt Lake. Tim, uh, yet another just awesome conversation with a guy who, he says he's got stories on Dax, he's got stories on Jamie, he's got stories on everybody in this league at this point. He's been around the block and uh, a great representative of RSL and Major League Soccer. Yeah, Dunny knows where the bodies are buried, especially if you're somebody who's come through RSL or if you're somebody that he's played with on the various other places that he's played. Uh, Dunny's going to have some stories about you, and he definitely has some that relate specifically to Nashville, but he gave us a lot of insight about RSL as well. And so then they will create a challenge for a Nashville SC team that will head in for their first road match. And I think you know we asked CJ, what has this club learned about itself as it heads onto the road? For the first time, but really, I think you only truly learn about yourselves once you've played a couple road matches and see how your dynamic unfolds on the road. And so let's get into embracing consensus, our segment where we agree way too often and unintentionally. And let's ask the question, should Nashville stick with its 4-4-2 formation as it heads to RSL and moving forward as a primary option? Or was the New England match a deviation that was tailored perhaps to exploit that particular opponent? 
Yeah, I talked earlier about how Nashville executed the 4-4-2 in a way that essentially didn't play out the way that you would expect a 4-4-2 to play out. They're not quite as cross-reliant. They're not quite as long ball-reliant. So you can use it more significantly as part of your overall scheme. But it's still better as a change of pace for me. I think if other teams do a better job cutting out those through passes and making Nashville go over the top or come in from the sides, it's going to really be stymied. And that's something that you don't want to have to rely on crosses. You don't want to have to rely on long balls. So if a team is going to do a better job cutting off those runs from Sapong, Baji, or whoever is starting in place of them at striker, it's going to be tough to use as an every game uh, formation. Okay, let's wholeheartedly embrace consensus on this one then. Again, the streak remains virtually intact. I think the 4 2 3 one is still the best use of Nashville's personnel, and I loved the 4 4 2. I think it makes use of your striker depth. It does make sense to play through those guys, and, and it gives the wings some freedom to create. It connects your attack better, but what about Hani? When Mukhtar is healthy, they're not going to bench him, and I, I just don't think he's going to supplant an Alex Mwil out wide, or certainly not a Randall Leal, and asked to be a wing. I do like the idea, though, of taking elements of that 4-4-2 and applying it to the 4-2-3-1. You mentioned earlier that that's the typical defensive look for Nashville. When they give up the ball, mm-hmm. they, they defend with two men up top, with Hani and whoever the striker is, the striker du jour. Uh, but I like the idea of also using Hani as a bit of a, a thunder and lightning. The, the lightning in that equation is a second striker when Nashville's trying to build patterns of attack and still doing some of those similar things, bringing him up from the attacking midfield. I think that that... that allows Leal to come in and play through the middle, which he always kind of wants to do anyway. Lovitz can come down the left flank and provide width if Leal's camping out on that left side and coming in from there. So I definitely think there are ways to to combine the two looks, uh, but I would I would definitely think a 4-2-3-1 is the way to go. We love to agree. We do. One of these days we'll find a vehement and angry disagreement, but uh, maybe not today. We can promise you thorough discussion. We can promise you great guests. We cannot apparently promise you controversy or a disagreement, at least not yet on this podcast. We, we, we got to watch watch some more like mid nineties ESPN to brush up on our uh, yelling at each other. <laughs> Seriously, can I? I can mute you at least. I can do the Tony Reale <laughs> thing. <laughs> but that's no longer a novelty because you know it's twenty twenty one and we've all muted each other on Zooms uh, many times. All right, well let's give you a voice and put you off of mute and go to the mailbag now. And we'll start with Scott. Scott asks: After four games, only three teams have two wins. In the East, does this make you feel better about Nashville SC and how those early draws might not be as detrimental as we thought? Coming into the New England game, I said, I don't think fans kind of queasiness about the way the season is going is quite justified. Um, Obviously, the results were not what you would want, but the underlying metrics kind of indicated that those wouldn't be consistently happening. So certainly there was a reason to be disappointed. But now that you've seen the team get wins, yeah, you, you obviously feel better about it. But I don't think fans should have been feeling that down before. Chris asks, what's your ideal 442 if we do continue to see it used when Gary has a healthy squad to choose from? What front two pairings, Tim, do you have the most dynamic potential? Yeah, I think the one that we saw uh, on Saturday is a pretty good one. Both Baji and uh, Sapong are the two probably fastest players that that can get it done. Um, Kadi's might be longer speed faster than either of those guys, but he doesn't quite have the change of direction as, you know, a big tall guy. It's, it's not quite the same game that he plays. So maybe if you compliment him with one of those two guys and you have maybe a like for like sub between them and we'll see when Rios gets healthy I think I've consistently maintained that he's one of my favorite strikers on this roster just cannot keep that foot in shape to contribute on a week-to-week basis and that's unfortunate but it's 
incredible that we're now talking about this kind of wealth of attacking talent that Nashville SC has after what we saw at times last year when they literally did not have a single healthy striker. Will Reiners asks, Nashville's expected goal differential per 90 is 0.95. It's second in the league behind NYCFC. Now, granted, it's only four games into the season, but should we be looking toward a sustained run of form or is it still luck? So to condense XGD per 90, essentially it's if Nashville scores at the percentage it's supposed to and, and, and hits the goals as it should, it's winning by almost one goal per match. And that mark is identical to Seattle's last year, which led the league. So I don't think Nashville's going to generate enough clear chances, especially as it goes on the road and over the sustained course of a season and, and with the mentality it, it often employs to lead the league in XG. And if you don't lead the league in XG as they do now, it's it's kind of hard to keep that XGD at the top of the league too, unless your defense is just absolutely dynamite. And in fact, I would say Nashville doesn't want to lead the league in expected goals because it might mean they're chasing the game and throwing chances in there. I say they don't want to. I mean, it's a good sign that you're generating chances, but it could be a game state uh, dictated thing as it was against Cincinnati and Montreal. I think for me, as long as Nashville's in the top third of the league in expected goals, in the bottom third of the league and expected goals against. It's doing its job. It should be still one of the best expected goal differentials in the league and should point to a top five or six finish. The top three teams, Tim, in that stat last year, Seattle, LAFC, Philadelphia. That would be pretty good company. Yeah, I think my answer to the question is, is simpler. They aren't going to be playing FC Cincinnati for a quarter of their games this year, so it's not going to have <laughs> that sort of opportunity to continue running up the XG differential. Although shout out to Columbus Crew from last year who who, who felt like played Cincinnati for a quarter of their games. It was mm-hmm. slightly under 20%, but yeah, a lot of it is is based on who you've played at this early stage of the season and and there aren't a lot of Cincinnatis out there even if they do play that that extra game against Cincinnati this year. Last question from Glenn. When will we see Gary start to rotate since Leal, Godoy, McCarty have played a lot of minutes and covered a lot of ground and I'll add a co- corollary to that question too with the international break coming up Nashville needs to be cultivating some guys who will step in for well Two of those three right there, uh, as well as others, maybe Walker Zerman as well, who, who will be leaving on international break. So uh, when will rotation start to come? Yeah, I think Gary is somebody who really values chemistry. We hear him talk about it pretty much every every pre-match press conference. He mentions it to some extent. He'll want to keep those guys out there as long as they tell him they can go. Obviously, all of them, and, and Dax in particular, are guys who are willing to run themselves into the ground for this team. But they're also honest and, and intelligent enough to know if they don't have a full tank, if they aren't going to be able to give it their all for 90 minutes. And I think, you know, it depends on when they start to feel that. I am not um, Dax McCarty's personal trainer. I cannot tell you the answer to that question. But I think he's also, as a team first guy, somebody who's going to say, if he's getting close to not being 100% for 90 minutes, he's going to want to help the team develop some of that depth. So it's, I think Dax is the one that you really look at and say, when he starts to feel ready to seed some of those minutes is when it'll really happen. So fair to say that it's more important to lay the foundations of chemistry right now and, and establish your identity and then rotate once you have that feel rather than trying to throw guys in just for the sake of throwing them in when your starters are fresh. Yeah, and when you have guys like Dax who are not going to play over the international break, he is not. He is past the age of getting those U.S. call-ups. Mm-hmm. He's going to have a chance to rest. You can play him for these first seven games, and then um, your chemistry versus rest situations can be figured out when they become more relevant on the road. Well, let's leave Music City behind and head elsewhere in the league for a trip around Major League Soccer. Let's go outside in 
A Columbus crew announced Monday a rebrand to Columbus SC, the latest Major League Soccer club to change its brand identity, although perhaps not as dramatically as Club de Foot Montreal or a few others. Nonetheless, a original, an original club in Major League Soccer. The crew nickname, of course, well-known in the league, but also just firmly embedded in the hearts and minds of Major League Soccer supporters after the Save the Crew movement. So I'll ask you, is a rebrand like this beneficial? Is the global audience that they say they're trying to pursue really attainable and is doing so worth alienating the local fan base? Perhaps a loaded and, and uh, biased question there. Yeah, I think to their credit, they say they'll still use the crew as an unofficial nickname. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I'm I'm strongly anti-rebrand in general. I think that it boils down to if you're seeking authenticity by changing your club identity every 10 years, the only thing you're guaranteeing is that you never have a lasting identity. Um, you're chasing people who you probably will never win over as fans and in the process alienating the people who already do love you. It, it's something that I, I don't see as necessary. So I think, you know, I'll let the, the Columbus fans speak for how they feel about the rebrand. And um, fortunately, I guess, because it makes me look smart, they tend to agree that they are not fans of it at all. Well, this idea of chasing a global audience, too, I guess takes for granted the fact that local supporters are going to eventually just swallow whatever and, and stick mm-hmm. with it, right? I mean, they feel like there's a baseline revenue that those folks are always going to provide. Nonetheless, do you really expect a global audience to come flocking to your brand because it has a shiny new mark and name? Or are they more likely to do that when they, they see you as an MLS original with a, a unique name and, and embracing the American style of doing things? I'm not ethnocentric here. I'm happy to adopt the best things from other cultures. And I think soccer as a global game gives us a chance to do that. But I think we can also double down on the things that make American soccer unique. I think if you're not leveraging those things, if you're not tapping into your history, then what are you really attracting people to? Yeah, and I think something you said in the middle there made me think of this. If you if you view authenticity and Americanness as antonyms, then what are you doing owning a, an American soccer team anyway? I think yes. You have to be able to accept that Americanness is not an antonym for authenticity. Right. And by being proud of the American way of building soccer organizations, of branding, of tradition, of history, we're not rejecting other cultures. We're not rejecting other traditions. We're putting our own unique spin on the beautiful game as they have all over the world. And I think to ignore that is um, it, it's part of this almost self-loathing that you see in some circles of the American game of always kind of wanting to reach and be European. You can be a hybrid of those things, you know? Yeah, it's a self-loathing or, or an insecurity that if yeah. you're American, you are, not, you are not quite doing it right, yeah. All right, let's head to the final whistle MLS fantasy update. I briefly enjoyed my time at the top of the table before taking a hard L, one of the worst teams in the league this past week, dropping to fifth place. Congratulations to Columbus Crew supporter or Columbus SC supporter. (laughs) By the way, Columbus C, it almost kind of, they should call themselves the snakes now, not the crew. (laughs) Big hiss in the middle. Anyway, Columbus supporter James tops the table after a 100-point week. Tim, you fall from 13th to 14th because you've been passed by 440 Sports proprietor Braden Gall. Is the manager in jeopardy this early in the season? Oh, man. He's in jeopardy of deciding that he's going to forget. He does with sarcastic <laughs> air quotes. That set his lineup for the rest of the year, that's for sure. Yeah, if you stop trying, is it really losing? I don't know. 
it's just a concession, I suppose. You, you got it figured out. Just ask FC Cincinnati, right? Ew. <laughs> Props to everyone, though, who continues to join the league. It is a long season, and we've seen a couple folks, Brian Cordova most notably, who joined after week one and have already passed folks in the standings. Uh, you know, After week 15, 16, you probably don't want to be joining. But right now, still prime time to join the club and country MLS Fantasy League. Just go to MLSsoccer.com or download the MLS app. Uh, any content recommendations for you? Yeah, I want to recommend something that um, is not really up my alley in one way, but it okay. is extremely up my alley in another. It is the Space 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 newsletter. That's three spaces. Uh, John Muller, who people probably recognize from American Soccer Analysis. He's John Space Muller on Twitter. And maybe that's where he got the name. It's a Champions League oriented newsletter, but it goes deep into the tactics, the statistics, the styles of all these globally elite teams and i think regular listeners know that the globally elite teams are not necessarily my cup of tea i follow west ham in the premier league after all so <laughs> um but still when you see the the coaching is often the difference at these top levels because all the players are extraordinary um, Messi is obviously the most extraordinary but uh, all these players are extraordinary and so the minutia that goes into it is just incredible and John does a great job catching up with people around the data analytics world catching up with people around the coaching world and bringing you just all sorts of different angles about how to make this beautiful game um, I think purists might say less beautiful but uh, as somebody who, who loves this side of things even more beautiful my recommendation goes to tactics as well it's the MLS assist podcast part of the total soccer show network jordan angeli and joseph lowry bring not just great tactical breakdowns of mls clubs but also a very upbeat approach that's still pretty accessible if you're not a tactical wizard i like to listen to podcasts at like 1.25 or 1.5 speed i slow it down for this because i really do want to absorb what they're saying and they give you plenty of riches and they don't just focus on the big names in major league soccer they'll get into nashville they had a great breakdown of austin a couple weeks ago and you know what is their tactical identity under under wolf early in the season uh, i think it's really good listening so listen to us first of course uh, on uh, tuesdays or early in your week getting ready for match day and then mls assist is a great piece of complimentary material as well yeah, I'm a, I'm a 1.25 speed diehard, and I do not change for them, but I definitely hit the back button and see what I missed far more frequently when listening to Jordan and Joe than I do many of the other podcasts that I listen to. RSL Bold Predictions, what do you expect to happen this weekend in Salt Lake City? I think the game will end, and David Ochoa will punt an autographed soccer ball into his supporter section. Unfortunately, for those who listen to our Brian Dunseth interview, that means that the Real Salt Lake victory is in hand, I think. Uh, Nashville's first road trip is just going to be too tough. They're they're going to have to adjust to flying in and out of a place. They're going to have to adjust to living away from their families for an entire day. It's just something that when they finally hit that road for the first time, the comfort that they've developed over the course of their four games in Nissan is going to be suddenly taken away from them. And I think they'll react okay. But uh, I, I think Real Salt Lake took one on the chin on Friday and they aren't going to want to do it again this weekend. And that's going to be to Nashville's detriment in a pretty tough environment. Won't predict a result, but we'll say neither team's going to earn a clean sheet. That's, that's my pick. I think we see at least two or three goals in this one. I think that Nashville's defense, which has struggled to get started really even against new England, they give up a, mm -hmm. a couple of dangerous opportunities in the early going against the revs, even though they ended up with the clean sheet. Uh, I think that could, that could haunt them again and they may end up chasing the game again. Uh, I think Nashville scores as well, and we see some pretty desperate attacking back-and-forth soccer in the second half that's going to make you glad that you stayed up for the late kickoff. And, of course, listen to it on ESPN 94.9. Well, we look forward to seeing what's going to happen in that match and, of course, recapping it next 
Tuesday. We'll be right here. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks to Moon Taxi for playing the jams behind us today. ESPN 94.9 and KSL TV for the highlights. Don't forget, again, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, follow us on Twitter. Tim, I, I hate to be terribly biased and choose one show over another, but I think this might have been our best episode yet. Yeah, shout out to CJ and, and Dunny. It was definitely them and not not you and I, uh, unfortunately. To oh, nothing to us. do with, yeah, I should say, yeah. the show's best episode yet, in spite of us. Tremendous yeah. insight from our guests. And tremendous insight across the 440 Sports Network. Don't forget to tune in to all the wonderful shows across the 440 spectrum. Until next time, so long.